These images, so there's a, a suite of photographs of six images and they're all called Almost Nothing, um, one through seven. And these particular images were shot in a place called Deception Island. This is Todd McMillan. Todd is an artist and lecturer in the School of Design at the University of Technology, Sydney. And he's showing me pieces from his artistic work, There Is No Hope, a photographic series capturing the landscape of Antarctica. So Deception Island is um, it's a, like a prehistoric um, volcano and one wall has collapsed and there's a scientific term for that that I've forgotten. But essentially what happened was that, you know, sort of one wall has fallen or a, po- a portion of the volcano has fallen and so then it is filled with water. And so um, in the early uh, 1800s then that was filled with whales. The whales would seek refuge in the base of this collapsed volcano and call it their home until it was taken from them. But this particular place, you know, sort of was shooting fish in a barrel. The whalers would come in and then that way they'd be able to trap these whales in there. And so there would be all of these ships, you know, and, you know, all of these just men, you know, sort of men speaking in different languages and what they dealt in was blood. You know, and then so they just killed whales, they killed each other. And then, you know, they would process this, um, they would process the fat, you know, on the land. And what is still there is the remnants of this sort of processing station and these big iron cylinders, and they've all now collapsed. As you can see in the foreground here, there are two crosses, which then, you know, sort of signify, you know, sort of the, the human death that occurred there. Meanwhile, not recognising that, you know, sort of the bottom of this volcano now, like, you know, literally has, you know, sort of tens of thousands of skeletons of whales that were then just slaughtered. You know, just that that sense of so much death here. You know, I think everyone should really look into the history of whaling too, that in a lot of, like, the Western wealth is built off the blubber of Wales, um, you know, sort of New York itself is based off that. You know, the Derwent River in Tasmania was once full of whales. I've never, ever felt such a pro- profound sadness than in this area. You know, that sense of, like, does the landscape actually have, you know, sort of a language, have a feeling like this This was one that was, you know, sort of palpable. You, you, the hair stood on the back of your neck and, you know, there was almost like, you know, sort of like a, like a quiver, like it was so overwhelming. This particular photo of Deception Island was just one in a series that crafts a visual story of not only Antarctica's history, but its future. A lot of what underpins my work is this sense of, you know, the sense of the sublime, that the individual being overwhelmed when confronted with nature, and it's that point where it passes beauty to sort of encapsulate a, a sense of terror. And for me, there'd be nothing more, uh, you know, nothing that speaks to that sentiment than Antarctica. For me to take photographs there, it was something that, you know, like I think there is this sort of very natural attraction that we have for this place, this uninhabitable, this large place, this sort of ancient thing that was one of the last things that, you know, we were able to sort of futilely conquer, you know, like we get down there and be the first one to get there, you know, to, for what? For this actual exhibition, you called it There Is No Hope. That's a pretty grim title to, to have. Well, why, why did you call it that? 
a lot of my work tends that way. There is, you know, sort of a, a melancholic sensibility, you know, that is sort of all persuasive in my work. And the actual um, title, There Is No Hope, came from a conversation I had with one of the scientists on board. And, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd engage them in a, in a conversation because, you know, sort of it was really the evidence of climate change there is just undeniable. But I'd said, you know, if... You know, if we were really good kids, you know, like if there was, a, you know, sort of a growing awareness within the public and then that, you know, sort of went to policy shift and, you know, like what, you know, like what's the turnaround? Like if we actually got real about, you know, sort of, you know, the use of fossil fuels and actually, you know, sort of getting to, you know, sort of actual targets that, you know, are beyond petty politics, you know, like how long till we could, this can be regenerated? And she said to me... She said we're fucked, <laughs> but you know, like I'll say that in another way. But that it's gone too far. So, you know, she'd say, you know, it basically explained to me that we've gone past that point of return, and so where we're at now is, you know, sort of about to sort of try and like slow rather than fix. And so that that for me, you know, sort of became this sort of really interesting idea, you know, terrifying idea that you know there is no hope. There's no way for us you know to actually fix this and it made me think of the scene from um Annie Hall like Woody Allen's um film where the young uh, Alvy Singer that was supposed to be the Woody Allen character is sitting with his mother and he's um in front of a doctor he's been depressed all of a sudden he can't do anything and the doctor says you know like why are you depressed and the the young boy says the universe is expanding the universe is expanding well, the universe is everything, and if it's expanding, someday it will break apart, and that will be the end of everything. And so the scientists reply, is, well, that's not going to happen for millions and millions of years. We've got to try and enjoy ourselves while we're here, huh? huh? <laughs> you know, for me, you know, sort of in the face of ecolo- ecological endgame, that became, you know, the doctor's response became sort of really indicative of what, you know, sort of the political positions of our of our leaders and of, you know, conservative media and that sense of going, it's not going to happen for ages, so what are we worried about? Like, even if it's going to happen at all, and it's sort of like, you know, like 2% of scientists sort of are suggesting that it might not happen. Like, that's bullshit, you know. This sense of, like, what do we do, the sense of the blending of the ecological and the existential, the sense of if we're in an endgame, like, what do we do now? You know, do we just, like, forget it, you know, and enjoy ourselves while we're here? Do we just drink? Do we party? You know, do we just forget it and just sort of go all out, you know, whack the air conditioners on, drink more water from plastic? And, you know, like, what does it matter if it's all over? And so... You know, the idea of there is no hope then, you know, becomes a, um, yeah, a poetically, you know, sort of grim thing to say that there is no, but then what? You know, are we willing to actually, at that point, like as a species, are we able to go, well, stuff it? There is hope within me that that is not something that we can say, that giving up wholeheartedly. And so to say there is no hope is to sort of, you know, provocatively suggest are you willing to embrace that idea that there is none? By nature, are sharks aggressive? No, they're not. They're not. So, so this is mushrooms growing out of a wasp. I mean, we're just, we're exposed to literally thousands of synthetic chemicals just in our everyday life. My family is normal. 
I just think, oh, every family is just three people. So if we put hair inside bricks, it will be like insulating your home. Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. And I'm Leah Summerglue. Welcome to Think Sustainability, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. So you just heard from Todd McMillan, the artist behind There Is No Hope, a photographic series looking at the modern landscape of Antarctica. And that story sets the tone for the rest of today's show. You'll hear two interviews looking at two different angles of how we need to work to preserve Antarctica, the international law and policy in place to protect it, and the science telling us what's happening now and what's going to happen in the future. We're going to start by looking through the eyes of a scientist and how they see the effects of climate change impacting the icy continent. Katerina Petru is a lecturer in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney, and just five days ago arrived back in Australia after an Antarctic voyage. What makes Antarctica unique and incredibly biodiverse is the marine life. So the marine life are essential and and they interact with the land. So you have seals and penguins and birds, seabirds and all of these things, but they're dependent on the marine environment. But one of the most remarkable things about being there is you can actually walk along the coastline or the beach and you have animals coming up to you. I mean, this is such a unique experience in the world today because they have no fear of humans and you see this pristine environment where animals are curious and they come up to you and sort of think well what are you doing here and who are you what animal are you so to not protect that I think would be incredibly sad but also think about it you live in the South Pole where are you going to move to if if it gets warmer there is no further south to go they're already as far south as they can be what animals were coming up to you oh you get little Adelie penguins very curious most of the penguins are curious so the emperor penguins as well and uh, elephant seals were down at Davis, and they're fascinating. What, what is an... Like, I know what a seal is, but what is an elephant seal? It's a species of seal, but the males will have these big protruding sort of rostrum or nose, so that's where they get their name, the elephant seal. They're remarkable creatures, and there were a group of scientists actually studying them when we were there, and they were putting uh, little devices on their heads to record their depth and temperature and things to get oceanographic information. So they stick them on their heads and then they send, well, the seals just do their thing, but they transmit data back to base and they're able to get learn more about the ocean and, and different things. Oh, wow. And one of the fascinating things is these seals can dive more than 2,000 metres depth. Oh. Yeah. And we're talking about a mammal here. So it's got lungs, it needs air, it needs to come back up. So you could, you're talking about some very interesting physiological capabilities that these animals have. They're you should put a GoPro on. <laughs> they GoPro. should. It's just yeah. what's missing, you know, except there's not much light down there. But yeah. And what were you doing there this time around? So I was with a team of researchers and we were going down specifically to investigate sulfur cycling. Sulfur cycling. Yeah. What's that? Well, marine algae produce sulfur compounds and these get taken up and also converted by bacteria and changed into other sulfur compounds which can actually release into the atmosphere and influence cloud formation. So there's a very big sulfur cycle that goes on in the ocean that's mediated by these organisms. Wow. And why why are you looking at that in particular? As one of the major nutrient cycles, it's important to have this fundamental knowledge so that we can better understand how it works and, and how the interaction between these organisms operates but also because of its influence in climate or, or in cloud formation, there's this very strong focus on trying to understand how this may shift with changes in ocean condition as well. And how might that? How might they change? 
there's still preliminary information out there, but it can change in various ways. So the environmental conditions of the ocean can influence how much sulfur is, of these sulfur compounds are produced by the phytoplankton and in turn how the bacteria that take them up respond to that and then the ending result is how much is released into the atmosphere. So these can be influenced by climate conditions. Is there sulfur in clouds? Yes. So <laughs> clouds are, are essentially made up of a lot of different nucleating compounds or particles and some of them can be sulfur as well as sea salt, uh, sea spray. With more sulphur in the atmosphere, is that damaging somehow to the like the inhabitants of this area, or is it damaging to the planet more across the board? An interesting question because uh, this is biologically produced sulphur, so it's for cloud formation, which would have a cooling effect essentially. But of course, we know from history that we used to put a lot of sulphur dioxide into the atmosphere, and that would cause blackening out. So you'd have a lot of pollution from burning and various other things which we've now learnt to filter out. So sulphur has a cooling effect because it, the aerosol particles in the atmosphere will actually reduce the amount of heat and light coming uh, into the planet. Right. And how are you doing this? These are phytoplankton are like microscopic creatures and trying to figure out the patterns that they're doing. And they're like wedged in the ice as well, aren't they? This, when they're in the sea ice, yes, but at the moment, uh, the time we were there this season, it was in the water column. So we were sampling water. It's a very intricate process, but basically we take water samples and we incubate them under various conditions and we can measure these sulfur compounds. We can also find out who's there through molecular techniques and microscopy. So we can start to build a picture of what's there and how it's functioning now and then start to understand how that process or function is going to change with various other condition changes. So yeah, this is one example, but just being down in Antarctica and seeing it with your own eyes, are you seeing or did you see how the landscape is being moulded and changed by changing climate conditions? So we're seeing very clear effects of climate change in Antarctica. The West Antarctic in particular and the West Antarctic Peninsula is one of the fastest warming areas on the planet. So the average temperatures have increased substantially and that of course leads to changes in the sea ice on that side. So we're getting changes in the formation of sea ice and its extent but also its duration and this has altered a lot of the biodiversity and biology over on the west side. So in the last 30 years or so we're seeing species decline and also new species moving further south that were never previously found there before. Like what species are moving there? So in particular penguins. So there used to be a large colony of or colonies of Adelie penguins and we're seeing that decline and other penguin species moving further south. So they were previously on the South Georgia Islands and now they're being found on the peninsula. But the fossil records show they've never been there before. So we are seeing very clear changes. On the east, it's a more complex story because we've had a lot of increase in sea ice extent in the last few decades and seemed a little bit counterintuitive given the idea of warming. But recent evidence has come to light that it's a, a result of changes in glacial melt. So with greater glacial melt from the continent, it's actually changing the physical chemical conditions in the ocean and changes the sea ice extent. So there's some really clear patterns emerging of climate effects down in Antarctica. These changes happening in Antarctica, what sort of implication would they have for, I guess, just the rest of the planet? The implications can be massive. Uh, the polar regions are essential for global temperature regulation and ocean circulation. 
because we need the difference between warm and cold. We need the cold areas in order to drive circulation patterns in our atmosphere and oceans. They're incredibly productive areas. So the Southern Ocean is a very productive area for fisheries and biodiversity. And also these cold areas are CO2 sinks. So they're a major part of absorbing CO2 as well from our atmosphere and play a role in that cycle. So how exactly is a place like Antarctica taking in CO2? It's the phytoplankton, that's exactly right, but also physical processes because cold water just will absorb CO2. It has a higher affinity for CO2. So there's a physical reason and you've also got a lot of wind and turbulence and circulation, but also the phytoplankton play a major role in, in that drawdown as well. They are Antarctica's trees. Absolutely. I spoke to an artist called Todd McMillan who went down to Antarctica. He was with a convoy of people and there was a scientist who was on board when they were going down there. He said to me that he said to the scientist, look, I'm I'm taking photos of the landscape here to show how it's changing and how things are looking dire. What, what's your opinion? Do you think that we're going to be able to switch this around? And then she said, there is no hope. Do you share that view? I think a lot of us in climate research share that view simply because, although it sounds negative, rather than there's no hope, I think I would say we are going to see change. We're not able to stop what's currently happening. We haven't done anything to stop what's currently happening. You know, we're not actually making the changes required that we've known about for decades. So for me, rather than there's no hope, things are changing. We can't always predict how they're going to change. It's a lot of what we try to do. And the world will be a very different place. Hope there should always be but it's a matter of, of what's going to happen. But certainly for some species, we're going to be, it's going to be goodbye. And that, that's it. Katerina Petru, lecturer in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER. Today, Antarctica. Now, different countries hold territorial rights over different parts of the continent. But when it comes to the actual policy protecting Antarctica, this is where we look to international law. International law stands to protect Antarctica with a number of international treaties still in place dating back to the 1950s. These treaties are there to restrict certain activity on the continent. But one type of activity which is currently under a moratorium, meaning a temporary ban, is the use of drones. David Leary, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney, has been heading a research project addressing the question, do we need to regulate drone use in Antarctica? But first, we took a step back and looked at the international law and treaties that currently govern Antarctica. Antarctica is one of the success stories of international law. The Antarctic Treaty that was negotiated back in the early 1950s set the bedrock for the regulation and governance of Antarctica and essentially set Antarctica aside as a demilitarised zone, as a place dedicated primarily to scientific research and more recently, environmental protection has become a key aspect of the governance and treaty regime down there through the Madrid Protocol to the Antarctic Treaty, which is a very, very sophisticated treaty that sets up a whole series of requirements for environmental impact assessment and a number of other treaties that have come together to form what's called the Antarctic Treaty System. And, of course, one of the most 
significant aspects of that is the prohibition on mining in Antarctica, which is implemented under the Madrid Protocol. What does it protect exactly? Well, it essentially prohibits mining in Antarctica, and it sets up a very complicated and long process for that ban ever to be lifted. So although we see a lot of narrative in the media about Antarctica being threatened by mining from a whole range of different interests, the reality is... Even if countries wanted to go down that route, mining is at least another 40 or 50 years away before the treaty system can be changed. And if countries can't agree on how to regulate mining in Antarctica, then it will never be changed. So what I'm saying is the actual system that's put in place is so complex that it makes it very, very difficult for countries to lift the mining ban. Um, That's not to say it won't happen, and I think we need to be very vigilant, but at the last Antarctic Treaty Consultative meeting held in uh, Santiago in Chile um, midway through last year, the parties to the Antarctic Treaty reaffirmed their commitment to that mining ban. So I think despite what we might see in some of the alarmist media, in the medium to long term, I don't think mining is a threat to Antarctica. The more important issue, I think, is climate change. Having said that, each year, literally thousands of tourists visit Antarctica by ship. Something in the order of twenty to 30,000 people a year visit Antarctica. Now, not all of those land on the shore because there's restrictions in place in terms of how many people can actually go ashore. Um, so some of the biggest ships that go there, people sail past and never actually land. Um, but there's a whole range of other issues that come with just the ships sailing past. There's risks uh, to the vessel's you know, that might sink in the very treacherous waters of the Southern Ocean and around Antarctica, problems with pollution if they do sink. And to their credit, I must say, I think the tourist industry has is conscious of their stewardship and their responsibilities, and there have been some issues at time to time, but generally speaking, the tourist industry has been responsible. One of the issues that you want to talk to me about is drones. So, yeah, enter drones. Like, Can we just talk about what exactly you're talking about with, I guess, introducing some sort of regulation around their use in Antarctica? So currently there are advanced notification requirements if people want to take drones to Antarctica and it's essentially is a ban on the use of them in the main areas where tourists would go. The main use of drones, this is what's one of the issues in terms of regulation, there's no one size fits all because there's many different types of drones that have been used so far in Antarctica. There's the very small ones, the typical ones you might find at a um, major retail store like Harvey Norman or David Jones, through to these massive things that are like the drones that have been used in other contexts like military contexts, although they have been used for purely scientific purposes in Antarctica. So there's a whole range of different types of technology, some that can stay up 15 minutes, others that have flown for 19 hours across Antarctica. There's two main issues. One is the safety issue. So Antarctica is a very treacherous environment to be operating aircraft. So if you're operating something like a little drone in those incredibly strong winds that can change all of a sudden and blizzards can suddenly appear, obviously there's a risk that something could happen to the people who are using the drone. So if you've got, you know, 20 tourists ashore looking at penguin colonies, for example, and one of those drones crashes, you're literally in the middle of nowhere. You know, how do you um, respond to that sort of safety issue? 
The other side of that, though, of course, is drones also have a benefit in terms of safety for scientists who are carrying out the research. Sure, there's, there's, there's issues, again, with the safety of, of drones, but the good thing about a drone is you don't have a pilot on board the drone. And so if the drone does crash, it's a bit different consequence to compare to, you know, if a helicopter crashes, it's a bit of a double-edged sword. The other issue is the potential environmental impact. Now, this is really still a work in progress the scientists are trying to understand what is the potential environmental impact of drones i'll give you one example so you've got some nesting colonies of penguins and they're there with their chicks their main predator is a bird called the skua and the skua hovers over the nesting grounds if a drone is flying over and hovering mimicking the sort of flight pattern of a skua what might that mean for how the penguins are going to react and what might that mean for the chicks so we don't really understand that yet the scientific community in particular are conscious to get a handle on what that environmental impact is now having said that in terms of the scientific community and remember one of the main pillars of antarctica is about scientific research and the huge amount of scientific knowledge we can get from carrying out research in antarctica drones offer an incredibly valuable new platform to carry out scientific research. So instead of having to rely upon satellites, instead of having to rely upon really expensive helicopters and aircrafts, scientists can take out a drone and can count penguin colonies from the air. They can map moss beds and see how they're growing. They can do experiments in relation to the physics of sea ice. A whole range of different uses that really make cutting each scientific research that we need to do a lot cheaper. So the debate now, I think, is not about should we be banning drones or anything like that. I think the benefits we get from the use of drones, particularly by the scientific community, as long as we can manage the potential safety and environmental risks, then I think the drone use should continue. And then I guess what is the point of regulating drone usage then in Antarctica? What's what's the best thing to come from that? Well, you don't want anybody who isn't familiar with the wind conditions in Antarctica and has never flown. You wouldn't want you or I, for example, just to go down there with our drone and fly it around and not be conscious of the risks. What they're proposing and what they're starting to implement now is a process of risk assessment, making sure, for example, that you understand what the potential risks are, where you're going to operate, what impact will that have on other aviation in the area, but also making sure that the people who are flying the drones are properly qualified, that they have experience you want to make sure that if somebody's going to be flying around a base or flying it off a ship, they have some experience in actually flying it. So it's things like pilot training, risk management, the technology itself, making sure it's, it's safe. Now, in terms of the tourist industry, there's, there's different issues there as well. Obviously, one of the things that people go to Antarctica for is because it's a pristine, isolated wilderness. It's a beautiful place. Do you really want a drone buzzing over your head when you're trying to observe penguins? So, you know, what's the impact on the other, other tourists that are there? So at the moment, there's a moratorium uh, with some limited um, exceptions in place that the tourist industry is looking at the issue. And on the other hand, the scientific community uh, have put in place these very good detailed guidelines. I guess the question is, do we need one regulatory regime that applies to all activities rather than two separate ones? And that's, yeah, that's a, that's a work in progress. David Leary, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Technology, Sydney there. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is a collaboration between the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER Radio. 
If you like the show, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Just search for Think Colin Sustainability. You can also find us on iTunes. For more info, you can also head to our website, 2ser.com forward slash Think Sustainability. I'm Leah Summerglue. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week. Thank you.